you know, <clears throat> I'm always grateful, but at the same time, it's alarming because we now have to live up to it. Well, yeah, um, you do. They've come to see you, so it's um, the pressure's well, all on you. Well, <laughs> don't make it worse. <laughs> um, good evening, welcome, and thank you for giving that great reception, <clears throat> much deserved. <clears throat> excuse me, to Peter Brook. Um, who has had several careers, as most of you will know. For the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 1960s, he directed pioneering productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream and King Lear, bringing out the playfulness of the former and the knotty darkness of the latter in ways that, through their film versions, still influence interpretations today. In the early 1970s, as British theatre went big, building National Theatre <laughs> here to rival the RSC, Brooke went smaller, moving to Paris to work with a company of his own that used wide travel and long rehearsal time to create epics of word, music, and movement, including the Conference of Birds and the Mahabharata. A recent production, The Prisoner, was seen here at the National last year. And as we'll discuss, there's an, another new production on its way to London. Brooke also has another line of work as a writer on performance with his pioneering, pioneering 1968 work, The Empty Space, followed in recent years by a beautiful series of books about first Shakespeare, then language, and now music. Playing by ear, reflections on sound and music. Um, they feel to me, having read all of them now, like a distillation of a lifetime's working and thinking. Um, are they based on notebooks you've kept over the years, or do you sit down before each of these books with a blank sheet of paper or an empty screen? I can answer that very, very simply, because for me, in every aspect of life, whether it's on the simplest level to the most complex, there are always two steps. There is preparation, and that's what you have been so kindly doing in preparing. And then, after preparation, and that's the difference between question and answer, the preparation is just clearing the way for something suddenly to come by itself, so that I, with my ever-close and marvelous collaborator, Nina, when I work on a book, I've got something in mind, and I scribble like that very fast, in the way that one talks. Sometimes I'm given speeches that I've made to look at in print afterwards, and I can't believe that I took so many words to say something that could be said like that. So with the help of Nina, I scribbled. She is a reader of hieroglyphics and can actually <laughs> read what even I, when I look at it, can't read anymore. She reads them back to me, types them up, reads them, and as I listen to them, I say, oh, that could be cut, couldn't it? Oh, that we've already said, that could go. And in that way, one second stage after preparation is just clearing the way, clearing the way, and then what matters appears by itself. But within that, do you have journals and notebooks and diaries that you can consult? No. I'm now going to jump, um, with, with the fluency that you suggested is beyond interviews, I'm going to jump to question eight on my sheet sure. now, because you, um, we will do the others, but you mentioned uh, preparation and spontaneity, and one of the most striking things you say, I think, in playing by ear, um, you write, 
when we call for rehearsal, do we ever pause to listen to this awesome word? Huh. Crouched in the middle between the R, the re, and the L is the hearse. <laughs> the wagon that carries the lifeless body to the grave. Um, rehearsal, you also point out that the French, your French will be much better than mine, they call it repetition or repeating. So they're both um, deadly. Deadly, deadly. Um, so I was fascinated by that because you spend much of your life in rehearsal rooms and there are huge rehearsal rooms. We just walked past them in the corridor. So um, talk us through that because it's a very bold suggestion. Re rehearsal can be death. Oh, yes. It has to be. It's very simple. Our job, when we touch on a theme, an existing play, when anything that gives us the impulse to say, ah, this is the moment, this is what we must do, then we make a little team, and from then onwards, we are explorers. We're searchers together. So that's why in a, a so-called rehearsal room, in an empty space, what we do is to encourage everyone, bit by bit, to be more and more part of the expedition. So we do improvisations. We t that's how the word like rehearsal showed its ugly face, just like that, by improvising. And more and more, we've found that this extraordinary instrument called improvisation, which 40 years ago I didn't even dare use, is the first way that a, a glimmer of life, and then if it's a teamwork, one can improvise, sit back, share comments, try again. If you don't succeed at first, try, try again. For me, the most important method is trial and error. And it's sleeping on it, coming back the next day, looking at it, and thinking, oh my god, who could have said anything so idiotic? How did they get that? <laughs> and I've often had that feeling, and with that, you clean the decks. But the aim, as you know, the aim of rehearsal for some directors and actors is to get to a performance which can then be repeated, as the French say, every night. Often, sometimes without variation. You probably don't go to big mega musicals, but the aim there is to get something that can be the same every night in every city of the world, if necessary. You would presumably be against that. Completely. When one goes, for me, every single... The, the, the big creative factor is that this is a shared experience so that if there isn't an audience, it's meaningless. The old-fashioned British actor, I remember when I started, would come off the stage and say in the wings, oh, they're awful tonight. I really can't be bothered to play for them. They're just a dreadful audience. Without drawing the conclusion that why are they a dreadful audience, one has to create, like in a love affair, it's no use re referring to that lovely person and what she did last year. Mm. It's a recreating a new intimacy. And that means that the... I mean, in so many plays, I found that the very first beginning of the play, because you can start a story a thousand ways, you can start... I learned this 
by telling stories night after night to my children. And if at any moment I would pause and they'd say, go on, go on, I knew that it was on the right track. But for that, I had to get their attention at the very first. And that's why for us, the opening of a play is so important. When we did something, I think was with the Conference of the Birds, before playing something that was in its very nature, esoteric and very special. We had an African farce called The Bone, which was a real marvelous, very short, broad farce, knockabout farce. And we would play this just like tonight. We were lucky enough as we came on at once to have a laugh from the audience. The moment that laugh came, we can now know that we can develop. So we, we, we are the comedy before Alex Jennings and um, Lindsay Duncan. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but also, but as you know, you, clearly you know, it's the Greek tradition, isn't it, that the satire play comes before the yeah. tragedy, comedy before tragedy. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the whole of the aim is the Greek theatre was not riotous applause, it was what happens to the audience when they leave, if there is this mysterious word, catharsis, if the climax of the play, and something terrible usually happens, doesn't leave you going out feeling miserable, but leaves you going out, somehow you have been purged. Yeah, when, I, when I'm really depressed, I watch your film of King Lear to cheer me up. <laughs> No, but it does. It does generally work in that yes. way. It does. Oh, yes. It does achieve catharsis. That's, that's what it's meant for, mm. tragedy. We quote in the new production, why, this phrase, tragedy with a smile on its face. Mm. Anyone who hasn't seen <coughs> Peter Brook's film of um, King Lear with uh, Paul Schofield available in the National Theatre Bookshop and elsewhere. It is, no, it's, it's an astonishing film. I've seen it several times. Um, <coughs> the, Bible, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. In playing by ear, you slightly vary that by suggesting that everything began with a sound. Yes. I don't think that's my invention. I was quoting what is referred to in ancient, ancients, customs in African villages where they, their creation myth is not of somebody coming down from heaven on a rope and standing here as the first man. Their creation myth is that, first of all, there was absolute nothingness, nothingness at all. And then life expressed itself by the first vibration, the first trembling in this nothingness that produced a sound. And bit by bit, everything follows. And in both that creation metaphor, that African creation metaphor, and the creation of music, which you write about a lot in the book, one sound becomes several and then a phrase or yeah. a sequence, often in several sections. Um, another very striking phrase, um, in the book to me, a five-act opera is one long phrase. 
A what opera? <coughs> a five act, the five acts of an opera, you say, are a yeah. single phrase, particularly uh, with reference to Wagner. I don't think I made a reference to Wagner. I never do. You do, you say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, we'll, have to, okay. we'll have to ask for video and review, as they say um, okay. in football. You say but, that is what Wagnerians... For Wagnerians, this is the magic of Wagner. Yeah, but it is that once you hear the first note, they settle down for the evening and just with our mouths wide open, just swallow something knowing that it's going to go on and on and on <laughs> for hours and hours. And that's the pleasure of Wagner, which I've never been a true Wagnerian. I've never wanted to stage a Wagner. But I think that one can say that in every form of music, and in every piece of good writing, and I think I say in the book, in every play of Shakespeare, there is a line which, if you follow it, the first line of the play is one long sentence which goes through so many ups and downs and ins and outs, but... And that is the experience that we all feel when we go to a great concert, whether a pianist, an orchestra, they prepare by tuning up. Then there's applause as the conductor appears. Then a moment's silence. And then from the first note, ideally, audiences refrain from applauding at the end of a movement because they know that that is just a step to the next chapter which develops and the next this is a very hard for a full orchestra to do, but I've found that is the uncanny effect of a string quartet. But two, a soloist, a duo, yes, a trio, yes, but the amazing thing is how in a quartet there is such a quality of intimate listening that you can really feel a phrase coming up, coming down, picked up here, referred back here, all the way until it does become one long phrase. And you must stop me talking, otherwise I'll go on and... No, 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 that's... <laughs> and no, it will become one, one my, long phrase. <laughs> one of my jobs is to, get, is to select some of the um, best stories in the book so people then rush out and buy a copy of it. And one of them, an orchestra clearly has a conductor. There's an amazing story in the book about the relationship between the Berlin Philharmonic and one of their greatest conductors, which is um, extremely, extremely spooky what happened there. Because they, they rehearse every day. But now they w don't tell them what's in the book or they won't want to buy it. No, they will. This is only... <laughs> this is one anecdote. There are many, many more. But can, can, I, I just was, I was amazed by that story. Well, that story is about two things that not even a dictionary, the best dictionary, can define presence. We all know that there is something extraordinary, the presence of a building, the presence of a work of art. I've been into a private collection of Giacometti's and coming into the room, the presence of those figures was unbelievable. And linked to presence, there is another undefinable something which is listening, and presence, listening, and above all, something that everyone here 
knows from their experience. Another word without a definition being touched. Because touched, you can't tell somebody else, ah, go to see this, I was touched. That doesn't mean they will be. It's directly in the present moment. In the present moment, you either are or you're not touched. And I write about all those people dressed up in their best clothes, going to a great Wagner first night and seeing them sitting there, sleeping. <laughs> because they didn't really go for the experience. And touched means experiencing at the very moment. When you, when you write in Playing by Ear about, and we talked about a couple of the examples, that African um, yeah. legend, there's another story, but you've got to read the book to get this, about a couple in New York in the 60s who believed that they had discovered the foundational sound of the universe. But anyway, rush out and oh, buy oh, this. Yeah. We're, we're going to save that one for you. But Good one. When, 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 <laughs> when you write about the mystical power of sound, I thought, as many people will, of that, the stage direction in the cherry orchard, where Chekhov asks for, as if from the sky, the sound of a breaking string, which dies away sadly. And it's, I thought of that a lot reading the book, because he was clearly thinking, to me, of the kind of thing you are, of the the mystical power of sound. Mm. On the other hand, if you produce that, um, if you direct that play, it's an impossible challenge to produce that sound, isn't it? Well, some of the best playwrights, unfortunately, are not good directors. <laughs> <coughs> because they have this immaculate sense of words, of the relation between words, of human beings, in relationships, but their image of what theater is is very often what it was when they first went to the theater very young, and so they stick with that, and so they give stage directions, which, for instance, today, nobody would say that we are betraying Chekhov if when he says, when the curtain rises in the distance, through the trees, we see the chimneys in the distance of the nearest sound. I mean, I've made that up, but that's the sort of thing. Nobody today believes that us sitting here doing a play of Chekhov, if neither you nor I are capable of doing it, but to really fine actors, all they need to do is just lean towards one another and you don't need that vista of the trees and the forest. And I mean, in so many plays, this is where it's so marvelous in Shakespeare. Shakespeare never wrote a stage direction. But if in a play of Shakespeare, somebody just says, it's cold here in the forest, that's all the whole audience needs to share that's what the imagination is, a sense that they're now in a forest. And then the next moment, they're plodding through, and somebody rushes on blowing a whistle, and we're in a city. Uh, but the, the notorious Shakespearean stage direction, presumably added by a later hand, exit pursued by a bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That wasn't him. 
we've put this into our last production, Y. And exit pursued by a bear. You don't need a bear for that. We do, in fact, in this play, do an exercise of Stanislavski, of a man being chased by a dog in the street. And the actor, because he has a really well-developed sense of body language, rushes in a circle around the stage, faster and faster, looking, looking down, looking down. In the end, terrified, we see in our imagination this dog. He doesn't do box or anything. He's just by looking like that until he rolls on the ground, leaps on a chair to get away, and then his wife says, all right now, there's no dog. Another thing you say in the book, though, which hasn't happened to the audience tonight, or at least not because of you, um, you say, our greatest guide we carry within ourselves is our sense of boredom. Ah, you talk yes. about that in an audience. Um, I argued with that a bit because some people, especially perhaps in England and English culture, they describe as boring anything that they find serious or difficult or don't immediately understand. So the, the boredom monitor can, oh, no, it can be a problem. Because that is our job, to know that that's, those are legitimate human beings and we must see that the language, that's the essence of Shakespeare, he could appeal simultaneously in his plays, to the pickpocket sitting there, to the drunk who came in late there, to the person sitting on the stage who's a, a very cultivated noble, and all those, they must bring ways of respecting each one of these human strands and bring them together. That's what it's all about. But if someone says, um, I just find Shakespeare boring, as some people do, some well, they're right, they're do there's nothing you can do as a director, is there, to get them into a... No, theory. I mean, it just, if that happens, you just go away. I must say this, but I don't want to encourage anyone that direction, that I always read a bad notice of anything I've done with particular attention, because sometimes in the bad notice, just put the finger on the one thing you've missed yourself, and so it's valuable. And it's, but what we do know is that on the whole, in the clubland that British theatre first came out of, all those old club men would be sitting there with their glasses, with their drinks, and there was always somebody when one called the gar garrulous old man who on the least suggestion would say, oh, well, that reminds me when I was, and they'll go on, and there's time for everyone else to go up and get another whiskey and come back, <laughs> and he's still going on. So that's why I want you to be careful to cut me off if I ever become garrulous. No, no, you're not so. Um, it's 51 years now since you published The Empty Space, which a book that is still um, available and read. Well, what I do encourage with people with that particular book, is that all you need is to read the title. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the title, and then you take it away on a desert island, and you try to think of all the overtones there are, you find the book. You don't need to read anything more. Mm. 
Well, I was going to ask you particularly about the idea in the title, or one of the ideas anyway, which is that anywhere can become a theatre. Yeah. And that has proved to be very prescient, I think, hasn't it? Because the, the pop-up or site-specific or temporary theatre has become almost standard. I mean, sometimes as a critic, you can go weeks without going to anywhere that was actually built as a theatre because people are doing them in restaurants, public lavatories, living rooms, and so on. Do you, do you presumably, you welcome that level of flexibility? It depends how you use it. If you, can, if you can really feel that there is something that can be so magnetic, so immediately interesting, of course you can go and do it in a public lavatory. But if not, then the audience's main attention will be going to something that's got nothing to do with anything of that sort. And to what extent, uh, when there's a big theatrical development, or at least a big theatrical hit, for example, Hamilton or... Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, these mega hits. Um, do you, are you interested in them? Would you ever go of to see course. them? Of course, of course. No, this is, I say I don't want to deprive anything if it has life. That's another indefinable word, but we know that boring means that the life's gone out of it. It's there, it goes on and on and on. That for me is Wagner, I'm afraid. <laughs> and it goes on and on, and one's sitting there and one's yawning. For me, when I have this sort of experience, I'm, part of my eye is just watching for the moment when I see an audience that is sitting like this as you are, and I just see a couple of people just and that is the signal. And in Playing by Ear, you say that the term creator should not be used of those who make art because... Oh, it's disgusting. Right. Because, you say in the book, creation only has one source. No. I don't say I say something which I think in every religion is respected. Why is it that whatever the religion is, if we go into a beautiful place like a cathedral, we do not go in and then start yelling and shouting. We aren't told to be respectful. It creates re something respectable. And that's where, if the relation with the space is right, there is this concentration of attention, and then everything can develop. I don't say that it can't be done, but I wouldn't choose, for preference, a public lavatory. <laughs> for me, this is blasphemy. It is clear, whatever one's religion or non-religion, there is only one single creator. And for an artist, I mean, so many young people, I hear them saying, either they say to me, critics usually, and journalists, what's your next creation? And I feel that blasphemous. You know, I do, I make a theater piece, yes, but to create, and a young person, who I've heard many young people saying, I'm going to be an artist. You know, to dare in the world of Leonardo, of Leonardo, to say I'm going to be an artist, to say I'm going to 
with any luck, be an apprentice, that one can understand. But just to say, my next step, I leave school and I'm going to be an artist and make creations. <laughs> Leaves one speechless. Um, so thank you very much to our captioner over there. Um, thank you to all of you, but most particularly, and he's now heading over to the uh, National Theatre Bookshop to sign copies of Playing by Ear, um, which we've given you a taste of, but it is a tremendous book and other uh, publications. Most of all, thank you to Peter Brook. <laughs> <laughs>